0: Oh God, you show your power to us in your mercy for us. Heal us that we may run the way of your commandments and receive your eternal kingdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, this is B side for our message on Matthew 5. 17 through 48, in which we look at God's greater righteousness, this righteousness that Christ calls us to, the shocking words that Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, and this is the thesis of the Sermon on the Mount. So in other words, everything we've read before it leads up to it, and everything we read after it filters from it. Matthew 5:20 Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Startling, but we looked at what it means in the message, and to make it short, Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that's better quality, not a better quant, not a greater quantity, but a greater quality than the scribes and Pharisees exhibited. We looked at what CS Lewis said in Mere Christianity as an illustration, um, their, their righteousness was on the outside only. It was about habits and works and keeping the law externally. But Christ was calling us to, yes, that, but also letting it now seep into us so that our nature begins to grow, to partake, to use Peter's terminology, to partake in the divine nature so c s Lewis had said this in mere Christianity. It is the difference between paint, which is merely laid on the surface, and a dye or stain which soaks right through so common righteousness is skin deep it's external, but Jesus's greater righteousness is whole. it's the whole person meaning it's external and internal. It's our actions, our words, and our thoughts. It's also part of our soul and becomes part of our character, which becomes virtue, which becomes our nature. The nature of God is righteous. He wants our nature to be righteous. We'll look more into this in the upcoming week in which we look at the infamous Matthew 5, verse 48. You must therefore be perfect as your... Heavenly Father is perfect. I'm excited to teach it um, because I think it will help us to see more clearly Christ's vision for the Christian life. And let me just say this in preview, and then we'll get into the rest of what I have to share with you about the law and the things we looked at last week. Um, But as preview, um, it is a lie of the devil to make us think that we can't keep Christ's commands. It is a lie from the devil, that we can't keep Christ's commands. Now, it's not to say we will keep them all the time, but much of Christianity is uh, not even trying to keep all his commands because we look at him and say, what's the point? We can't do it. That is demonic doctrine. Well, that'll be for next, this upcoming Sunday. Okay, but on this B-side, uh, here's what we're going to look at, at, a quick overview, and then we'll get right into it. Um, we are going to overview the history of the law real quick. We'll look at a couple of passages in the Old Testament leading up to Jesus' climactic statement that he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And the way that he fulfills the law is by calling us to a greater righteousness. Um, then we will look at this greater righteousness, this greater law, this law of Christ, which supersedes the law of Moses, which therefore makes Christianity supersede Judaism. And, uh, I want to raise a question about Messianic Christians. Um, and then, uh, we will look at an alternate way of translating the whole, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn your other cheek to him also. Um... I don't necessarily adopt it, but I do think that it has some interesting social ramifications of their time and makes us think about how to interpret it in our time. And then lastly, we will end with Jesus' law of prayer. His law of prayer found in Matthew 5, verse 23 and 24. It's what the early church called it. Uh, This was what they practiced. We have from documents their actual liturgical practice in Sunday worship. So, let's get right into it. So, the history of the law, and I hope that we see, because remember, one of the main thrusts we were talking about on Sunday is that the law of God is not there for judgment, necessarily, uh, although there will be some of that if we don't keep it, um, but it's there for our liberty. So, the first law we see in the Bible, um, apart from God commanding creation into being, and it's in being, uh, but the first one he gives to the humans, We find this set up in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis 2 verse 9, we find out that there is a tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Then in 2 verse 16, The Lord God commanded man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So one command, he gives us two trees and one command. The Both trees are there to give us the choice of who we want to commune with. If we choose to commune with God, we will be eating from the tree of life and receiving his life in us. Now, that's not a one-time thing. It wasn't like they eat the fruit and now they've got eternal life in them and they're good. No, no, no. The trees were set up for communion, for habitual practice, for coming and returning to and seeking one's life from these sources. So the tree of life was where man went to continually receive the life of God. Can we ever receive a fullness of God's life? No, not technically. Because God is infinite and eternal. Now, we will receive his eternal life, but we will never actually have the life of God himself. We are creatures. So we can keep on filling up in this life and you could keep eating from that tree forever and you will only be reaching higher levels of living and communing with God. You'll never reach the top level. You'll just keep reaching a higher level. Conversely, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree was communing with the serpent, with the devil, with the ways that are not God's ways. And this, he told us, would result in death. So, if we commune with God, we have life. If we commune with anything other than God, really, which is the devil's realm, then we will receive death. And we can see that God's first command was for liberty and life." Now of course we know that we chose the tree of knowledge and received death. That death was an exile, as an exile, a separation from the life of God. And so we see humanity falls into corruption. They continue to increase in the ways of death. And as you read Genesis, we see that sex and violence and other ways of death, an abuse of sex, we should say, and violence, um, increase. And um, the corruption of humanity reaches an all-time high. The flood comes, the corruption returns. Um, and then we see Israel enslaved, another picture of death, uh, in Egypt, then God comes and rescues them, and he leads them into the wilderness. He leads them to a new mountain. Now, Mount uh, the the Garden of Eden, if you look at Ezekiel 28, is depicted as a mountain. And that makes sense, because throughout the Bible, God dwells on mountains. Uh, Eden was a mountain. From that, at that mountain we would commune with God at the tree of life. And from there we would take the life and energy, the grace He gives us to expand His garden to the ends of the earth. That was the original commission. Um, but we no longer have that. So at Mount Sinai, God is going to engage in a new communion with his people. He's going to give them a new law. The point of this law was not to restrict them, but was to lead them out of death and into life. So we look at that in Exodus chapter 19. And this is important because we usually skip right to Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, to look at the law. But Exodus 19 is incredibly important because it tells us why God gives them his commands, his instruction. So in Exodus 19, verse 5, um, we see the reason he brought them out of Egypt. In verse 4, he says, he brought them out of Egypt on eagles' wings so that they may be brought... Uh, e- um, and then in verse 5, it says, Now, therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, which will be detailed in the following chapters, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this commandment was given to them so that they can be this treasured possession and holy priesthood to the world. Why? Because God was leading them back into a Garden of Eden-like experience. You'll notice phrases for the land they were, the promised land was flowing with milk and honey. Uh, Exodus 15, the Song of Miriam, or the Song of Moses, uh, describes them that they are going to be planted in the land so that they will sprout and grow fruit. Leviticus, uh, 20, I think also 18, describes how if they don't keep God's commands, the land will vomit them out. This land was to be fruitful, but there's, but the land would reflect their ability to keep God's commands. If they keep his commands, the land would be fruitful. If they don't, the land would be barren and it will vomit them out because the people are poisoning it. Of course, that's what happens in the exile. But now, this this whole calling, the whole mission, the reason God saves Israel was so that they can be instruments of saving the world. That's what it means to be a holy priesthood. They were the go-betweens. uh, between God and the people, just as a priest invited worshipers to God and represented God to the worshipers. Israel as a nation would be that to the nations, bringing them into the presence of God. And in a whole nother Bible study, uh, in fact, you can look back at past podcasts in Exodus. We looked at how the tabernacle itself was modeled after the Garden of Eden. God was growing a new garden community there in Israel. So, again, this was to be a law of liberty. This law of liberty had to keep Israel free so that they can then be t- told how to bring the nations to himself. So, if they're to be a kingdom of priesthood, how are they to do this? The Ten Commandments tell them how to do this. How are they to be a light to the world? How are they to bring them to God's salvation and liberty? They're going to keep the commandments and keep his law. Now, we also can't overlook the fact that God tells them before giving them the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. I This is Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These commands will keep you free. And as you live free in these commands, the world will realize that Israel is flourishing like Eden, and they will want to join God's kingdom. That was the goal. It tragically fell apart. Israel did not keep the commands. And so what happens? They go back into enslavement, in exile. They are uh, removed from their land and uh, live in Babylon. And um, one day to return. And this is what Jeremiah has to say about this return. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Uh, It is quoted in Hebrews as... Uh, it's alluded to in Luke 22 when Jesus is uh, giving the Last Supper to the disciples. The cup of the new covenant, he calls it. Um, so the cup, when we receive communion, represents this new covenant that Jeremiah talks about. In Jeremiah 31, 31. He says, Behold, the days are coming, and for the Christian are here. Declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So new covenant, that, that's the phrase that in Luke 22 verse 20, Jesus uses when he holds up the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we know when this new covenant comes. It comes in Christ and it is brought, we are brought into it through communion. Now we do this communion weekly, because like the tree of life, we must keep coming and receiving deeper and deeper and deeper depths of the life of God. We move deeper into this new covenant. So behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there he's referring to what we just looked at in Exodus, that covenant that he made with them. He there became their husband. They became his wife. They wanted a divorce. They didn't keep the commands. Um, So in verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now pause. We're reading about Israel. Of course, because Israel was the people of God at the time. We now know, through Christ giving us the cup, the church the cup, that we are part of this new covenant. We are part of this Israel. So, um, you need to read this as including us. So this is the covenant that will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is the greater righteousness, the greater law that Jesus calls us to and how we can keep it. Because this is not just about following a set of rules or steps to becoming perfect or right. This is about letting him inside us and making us a law unto God, if you will, that we live out what he desires That's what it means to be unified with Christ, to have communion with him, is that our loves are his loves. His desires become our desires. We will the same thing. He continues, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. There you have it. This leads us right to Christ. So the law is no longer written on tablets of stone, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, but is now written on our hearts. Um, I just thought of this, so let me find it real quick. Who made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of not of the letter, but of the spirit? For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And just right above that, he says, um, he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So we have a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. So that's uh, 2 Corinthians 3, verses 3 and 6. And that's where we see Paul picking up on the same concept that the law of, God, of Christ, this is not just the Sinai law, not just the old covenant, not just the law of Moses, but it's the law of Christ written on our hearts. And so we see, again, to recap from Sunday, that Jesus climbed a mountain as Moses climbed a mountain to receive the law. Jesus gives this new law to the people. This is no longer the Mosaic law. It is the Mosaic law fulfilled as Christ's law. So think of the Mosaic law as a seed, but the seed has now germinated and sprouted and flowered, and what we see, the seed, this this little thing that had potential, has now come to its full potential in the law of Christ. And so we are partakers Of that. So, this is extraordinary. We've come to what the law was always intended to be. We get to inherit the fullness of it. Israel lived in its shadow. The church lives in its fullness, in the brightness of the sun. And this is where we have to realize that what Christ has done is he has brought us into something entirely new. It's not that the church is a break-off from Judaism and this new separate thing. No. Remember, the church is the perfection. It's the fulfillment. It's the fruitfulness and the flowering, and, and its, it's an original purpose is realized in the church. Israel's original purpose is realized in the church. The law's purpose is realized in the church. God's relationship with humanity is realized in the church. The Mosaic Law in the Old Covenant was a step to get us here. So the church is not separate from uh, Israel. It is the fulfillment of it. It is not separate from Judaism. It's the fulfillment of it. And actually, properly speaking, Judaism itself is a new religion. After the rise of the church, Judaism broke itself off. You might remember that the church was originally Jewish, and then it became increasingly Gentile because the Jews decided, "No, we're going to stick to the old thing." And they, in some ways, changed Judaism uh, and even, uh, yeah, and and really tried to work at distinguishing themselves from Christianity. Uh, so this leads me to wondering: What do we do with Messianic Christianity? Or messianic Jews is sometimes what's called, referred to. Now, I understand a Jew that receives Christ kind of wants to keep their Jewish customs. Um, but I do have to wonder what, are they, why are they doing that? When Christ has come to fulfill all of that, they're staying in a shadow. Yes, they have Christ, but they're no longer practicing his commands or practicing old commands. Um, and also, what I find especially confusing is when non-Jewish Christians go into Messianic Judaism. Um, why? Why, why are you going backward? In fact, Hebrews has a lot to ask about this. Now I understand because I've heard, and I know, I know, uh, Messianic Christians and Messianic Jews. Um, I've heard how uh, much it brings life to their faith and, and, uh, Because what it does is it brings a Jewish perspective to the New Testament. And it's a fresh perspective and it's a different perspective. But what I think really brings people into it is that there's custom, there's ritual, there's liturgy. And it's usually evangelical Christians who have absolutely no tradition in liturgy that get drawn into this. And it's been my observation that the draw to Messianic Judaism is simply, it's my Christianity with a liturgical flavor. Now, of course, there's reasons they've chosen not to find liturgy in the Catholic Church and other mainline Protestant denominations which have kind of grown cold and dead Um, because those just seem wrong and foreign to us and even cold, but Messianic Judaism has a fire and it's more biblically based is the assumption uh, Old Testament based. Um it's his draw to liturgy. But brothers and sisters, we have to realize that the church has a liturgy. We don't have to go to the Jews for a liturgy. We have a liturgy and we see it as the fulfillment of these things. We don't have to live in the half baked liturgy. We can live in the full baked liturgy. Um, I'm kind of just ranting, giving you some thoughts, but, um, yeah, just for example, like when, uh, when, when Easter comes around, you'll, especially those Messianic Jews, and they're like, it's all about Passover, and we'll, we'll, we'll practice the, the Seder feast and Passover. And it's like, okay, that's great if you just want a historical experience. But Passover isn't the point. It pointed to Christ the Lamb. And now Easter is how Passover has been perfected. We need to celebrate Easter and the traditions of the church that have ar- that have arisen uh, around the risen Lord. so one of the things our church is doing is it's trying to bring um some of that liturgy that people deep down inside miss and but this is this is the liturgy of the people who gather around the resurrected Lord. Not around customs that have been brought to fulfillment. Um, Yeah, I just thought that needs to be heard uh, because I think there's a draw to it without really thinking through if it's good or not. Now, that's not to say Messianic Jews are not saved. Not at all. Um, I just think that we need to not assume a step backward is progress. Um, we need to step forward in our life in Christ. And um, I hope that you guys are appreciating and experiencing some of that in Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks. Um, Josiah Trenham had this to say in a lecture I heard, Uh, I jotted it down as quickly as I could. So I'm going to try to decipher my code here. But this is where he's really calling us to realize that what Christ has given us, his law, far exceeds anything in the Old Testament. And so he's saying we have to move on because how can we not if you consider this? So here's what he says. We are called to a way of life only possible to those called to be united to the incarnate Son of God. He's referring to this fulfilled law, this greater righteousness. Now, can you imagine God having the same standard for Jews and for Christians? Our ethic is a kingdom ethic, referring to the Christian ethic. It's a kingdom ethic a kingdom appropriate for those who have actually been united to the incarnate Son of God, to those who live after heaven and earth have been united in Christ, to those who live after death has been destroyed, the devil bound, the demons mocked, sin atoned for and removed, the flesh of mankind enthroned in heaven in the ascension of Christ, the Holy Spirit poured out on Pentecost, the church inspired and exalted. After all of these things, we are supposed to live like Jews who never dreamed of these things? Impossible. We have a unique, much higher, fulfilled law called the law of Christ. What a beautiful thing we have in Christ. Brothers and sisters, let's remember to keep him central to our prayer, our reading of the scripture, our liturgy, our worship, our our virtue, our growth in righteousness. Let us keep him central. We want to look at the Old Testament not through the lens of Judaism, but through the lens of Christ. He said the scriptures were fulfilled in him. And we read about in Luke how he taught his disciples and showed them where scripture, uh, where he was the fulfillment of scripture. Uh, we must read scripture Christocentrically. And that's uh, my challenge to us. Let's take our Christian faith where we haven't taken it before. Let's not look backward. Let's look forward the incarnate Son of God reigning and ruling over us, exalting us at His right hand. Amen, amen, amen. Alright, switching gears now to two more things. We've got this... uh, this third way interpretation by Walter Wink and the Jesus's Law of Prayer, both of these are coming from the text of Matthew five itself. So, uh, the third way uh, by Walter Wink. He's a scholar. He wrote a book called Jesus and Nonviolence: A Third Way. Um, he write uh, he, this is uh, based on Matthew five verse thirty eight and that whole paragraph. Um, you have heard that it was said. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, traditionally, this is looked at as basically like Christ, who was willing to suffer at the hands of sinners and evil um, because fighting against it would not have been right. Uh, That sometimes being wronged is the right thing to do. That sometimes suffering is what we're called to. Now, um, some people don't like that interpretation. Now, you might remember on Sunday I did mention that these are illustrations and not necessarily straight up commands. So there's always wiggle room in certain situations. Like, well, what if someone comes in and attacks my family? Am I just supposed to watch? Like, okay, come on, people. Like, Jesus did not give us a universal command here. It's an illustration of what greater righteousness looks like. You're supposed to work this out in daily life. It's why the law's written on our hearts. Um, But so, what some people have done, and Walter Wink, who's a great scholar and did a lot of good research on this, there's um, a lot of societal interpretations he brought to this text, which make a lot of sense. And so, um, whether we say yes and to this interpretation or say, oh, I like this better, I don't like this at all, here's, here's what I'm going to summarize, uh, what he says from the book. Um, you'll notice what Jesus says is do not, uh, I'm sorry, he says, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. Now that's an important detail, the right cheek. Okay. Now I want you to imagine you are facing an opponent and they deserve to be corrected. So you're going to slap them on the right cheek. Okay. So in this time, left-handed people were looked at suspiciously. Left-handed, being left-handed was not considered an option. You were an anomaly. The world was right-handed. So you don't slap people with your left hand. Okay, In fact, that hand was considered dirty for um, ancient toiletry purposes. <laughs> uh, so you would always slap with your right hand. Now, how do you slap someone on the right cheek with your right hand? Play that out. Imagine it. If you're listening to this with somebody else, go ahead and have a have a duel. <laughs> the way you slap the right cheek with your right hand is by backhanding their right cheek with your right hand. Okay, that's important because the code of etiquette in this time was that equals slapped with the palm, but superiors slapped inferiors. With the back of the hand. Did you hear that? If you were to slap an equal, you would slap with your palm. If you slapped an inferior, you would use the back of your hand. So according to Walter Wink, the picture we have here, Jesus saying if someone slaps you on your right cheek, uh, is that you are being slapped by a superior. They're treating you as an inferior. So you are being backhanded. By them. Okay, so then what does Jesus command? He says, If anyone strikes you, slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, so now imagine your opponent. You know, you're face to face, you backhanded him on the right cheek. Now imagine that he turns his head to your left, exposing to you his left cheek. Can you visualize the awkwardness of what just happened? Your opponent is inviting you to slap him again. But you cannot do so the way you just did. Imagine now trying to backhand his face with his face turned to your left. You can't get to the cheek without smashing his nose. By turning the other cheek... Your opponent has now invited you to slap him with your palm. Which means, don't treat me as an inferior. Treat me as an equal. So, the interpretation here is that Jesus is giving his people um options. Non-violent options of bringing... Uh, what would you call this? Um... Not integrity, but, uh, oh man. Um, well, basically, you're treated with human rights in a way. Uh, dignity, that's the word. You're being treated with dignity. That we can, without being rude, without being violent, without, uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, elevating ourselves to our opponent's equality. So we don't have to take them down, we just have to remind them very subversively, hey, I too am a human. Now, uh, that's a fantastic and interesting way of reading the text. Uh, And I don't know. I don't know if that is the way it was intended. If this is just a lot of clever... uh, You know, bringing together societal norms and creating an alternate interpretation. But that is the way Walter Wink, uh, talks about interpreting this passage. And he does so through the rest of this paragraph. The other examples apply the same way. So, for example, in verse 40, if anyone would use you and take your, oh, I'm sorry, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's another subversive, nonviolent way of saying, hey, I am not your inferior, I am your equal. Why? Well, because usually suing somebody, a court issue in Jewish times, happened at the city gate. It was a public place where there'd be many witnesses. And so when someone <clears throat> wrongs you and takes your cloak, then what um, Wink says is Jesus is advocating, just take off your tunic too, which is your undergarment under the cloak. So you take it off, and what are you now? You're stark naked in the public square, and you're handing this over to your accuser, and now everybody who's watching who finds his scandalous... Remember, the Jewish culture found nudity completely shameful, which goes back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell and they were naked. Uh, they abhorred nudity, which our culture did too. Um, but so that man to stand there naked and to be handing his last remaining garment to his accuser would actually make the accuser look like the wrongdoer in the eyes of the public because he forced his inferior into a place of shamefulness. And so now there would be this uh, embarrassment of the people to want to elevate the shamed one, the inferior one, and it brings the accuser and the sued one uh, into equal status. And then with the third example, Jesus gives the same thing. Verse 41, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. So uh Wink points out on this one uh that this is referring to Roman soldiers who had permission to use the common people, not a Roman soldier, a non-Roman, i mean, not a Roman citizen, a non-Roman citizen. So, in the context of the Jews, a Jew. Uh, a Roman soldier had the right to make any Jew stop what they were doing and serve as his pack animal. That's dehumanizing, isn't it? So you are at the market. You're in the middle of buying groceries, and the soldier says, here, carry this load for me. If you value your life, you stop what you're doing, and you carry the load for him, wherever he tells you to go. But the Roman law said, up to a mile. Because the Romans were shrewd, and they knew exactly how far to subject people before it would make them break and revolt. So, um, up to one mile. Roman roads had mile markers, so the soldier could take you up to that mile marker. If he went further, if, if the uh, human pack animal went further than the mile, the Roman soldier could be in trouble by Roman law. What is Jesus advocating? You've been treated as an inferior. You've been dehumanized. In those moments, humanize yourself. Bring dignity By showing your so-called superior that you're not inferior, you're equal to him. How do you do that? Keep going past that mile marker and watch the Roman soldier sweat and now become, instead of demanding you do what he says, begging you to spare him from trouble. Now, some people reject these interpretations because in a way it seems slightly vindictive, doesn't it? Um, you could see that. And I think that that's my one element of caution. But otherwise, these are fascinating ways of interpreting these otherwise troublesome texts, or potentially otherwise troublesome. I still have no problem with the teaching that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, when Christians are suing each other, and he just, in exasperation, asks, why not rather suffer wrong? Because we know that our God will vindicate the wrongs of time. Eternity, Spurgeon said, will right the wrongs of time. We don't have to take everything into our hands. Um, but there you go. I thought that was um, very much worth your at least knowing about. Um, and you can see why I didn't try to fit that into a sermon, because it, on its own, takes like 15 minutes to talk about. Okay. If you're still with me, good job. We got one more, and I think this one's pretty important. Um, Jesus' law of prayer. I'm gonna, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to read to you an excerpt from the excellent book called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. It is, in my opinion, and this has been seconded by more than one source who is well learned in church history, one of the most, for me, the most important book on church history. It is a lens into how the early church actually operated, and it is from the earliest documents that we have available. It is a fascinating look. And if you want to know, Calvary Chapel Twin Peaks and our Sunday expression of worship, our Sunday liturgy, is largely based upon the evidence um, presented in this book. And what I mean by that is... Um, Mostly the flow of our worship, um, that after the sermon was intercessory prayer and after intercessory prayer was communion, um, that's an order that we have followed from the beginning since we decided to um, include more liturgical elements. And in the book, he shows why liturgy really mattered because liturgy was part of forming the habit and the way of seeing the world and the way of thinking of early Christians so that when they engaged culture, they were never becoming conformed to culture because Sundays train them out of cultural thinking and habits. That Christian worship was meant to exercise culture out of us and put the kingdom of God into us. This is why I'm passionate about liturgy. It's not because I wish we were Catholic or Orthodox or or Anglican or I have this secret fetish of secretly turning our church into that. Not at all. I mean, there's actually ways to turn a church into one of these uh, institutions. You, You can apply and do that, so I've heard. Like, that's not the goal. The goal is that because this has shown through history to be the best means of transforming Christians. We're not a church about entertaining people. On a Sunday, we are about forming disciples on a Sunday, and yes, discipleship goes deeper than what we do together on a Sunday, but liturgy is a huge component of that. our home groups are going to be another component of that, and the way of life we share with each other um, that's all going to matter, but that's a huge component so um the book, if I got you interested in it, uh, I do need to warn you, it's a little bit scholarly. It's not exactly like reading that's going to make you smile and, and be happy. It's going to take some thinking. It's like a furrowed brow kind of read. <laughs> um, but it's excellent if you have the uh, gumption to read it. So here's what I'm going to do. is I'm going to read a, an excerpt of it for you in which um, we see how the church interpreted and practiced Matthew 5, 23-24. So here's what Matthew 5, 23-24 says. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So that's in this section where Jesus talks about, yes, don't murder, and let's also not be angry with each other. So, the church recognized anger coming into the christian community was dangerous paul says uh, reconcile lest you give foothold to the devil in ephesians chapter 4 so this was huge in the early church's view now when he talks about offering your offering at the altar it's easy for say oh he's talking to jews and the temple no remember the law of christ is a fulfillment of the law of moses It's its maturity. So we didn't cut sacrifices out of our worship. The New Testament itself says that there are different sacrifices we offer. Our prayers, our praise and thanksgiving, and our bodies. These are the offerings that the church now offers. See, the offerings went from External animals to us and to what we give God in our hearts. It's a higher form of offering. So, yes, we are bringing offerings to the altar. And as you're about to hear, they saw that our intercessory prayers and Holy Communion were the offerings that we brought to the altar. So, without any further delay, here's what Alan Kreider says. I'm beginning on page... Uh oh, it's Kindle so it doesn't have the page number, but if you're reading from a Kindle, it's location 6219, and it is in his magnificent chapter 7 entitled Worship. He says, "Why was this community so concerned?" He's talking about the 3rd century community in Syria. So you might know Antioch in Syria was one of the biggest hubs of Christianity. In fact, you see that early in Acts, that Acts it was in Antioch that the Christians were first called Christians. Uh, Antioch was one of the earliest Christian communities. Third century means the 200s. So don't think that's 300s. This is 200s. This is this is quite early. Like like there are people in the church um, that know. People personally, or remember people personally at least, who were personally discipled by the apostles. Like, we are are within living memory of what the apostles taught the church. So, okay, so he says, why was this Syrian community so concerned to fence in its prayer? One thing he's talking about there is that unbelievers weren't invited to be part of the prayer part. They, they heard the teaching, but they were invited to, uh, they were dismissed from the worship service when it came then after the sermon to the prayers. That's because, um, prayers were considered to be a uniquely Christian offering to God. So this is what he's talking about. Why was the community so concerned to fence in its prayer? Because its leaders recognized how important prayer was for their lives and witness. And they knew that if the relationships in the community were broken, their prayers could be frustrated and even nullified. Uh, look at First Peter, where he talks about, um, on three occasions, that our prayers and God's hearing them are, direct, are, are tied to the way we treat each other. Uh, Kreider continues, Of course, tensions would arise between members who got angry with each other. These had to be reconciled immediately, for lasting anger begets sin. The the Didaskalia, one of the documents from the Syrian church, points to a liturgical statement of Jesus that the community took with great seriousness. And here he reads Matthew 5, 23-24. And then he says, the community's offering to God was its prayer and Eucharist. Now, if Eucharist makes you get all Catholic dizzy, I need to remind you. Eucharist is simply the Greek word for thanksgiving. And the early from the earliest time they called communion the Eucharist, because it was their thank you for giving us Jesus. It was a it was a thanksgiving to him. So that's what he means by Eucharist. So uh, the community's offering to God was its prayer and communion, Holy Communion. Uh, but as the Didis, the Didascalia warns, "quote If you continue in anger with your brother or he with you," end quote. These will be stimmied, stifled. Your prayer shall not be heard, the document continues to say, nor shall your Eucharist be accepted. End quote. Even if believers pray often, three times in an hour, their prayer shall be unfruitful. For, quote, God will not listen to you on account of your hostility towards your brother. End quote. So, the Didascalia urges its communities members to go and make peace with their brothers and sisters. Quote, Forgive your neighbor, and your prayer will be heard, and the offering which you make will be acceptable to the Lord. End quote. To facilitate the the reconciliation, the Didascalia establishes a conflict resolution process led by the bishop. Now, the bishop was simply the pastor who oversaw a couple of other pastors. Um, Sometimes... As a pastor, I wish I had a pastor who pastored me. It, it, um, but yeah, that's what, that was the early church's uh, setup. So, um, the conflict resolution process was led by the bishop. Um, what if a flood of new people suddenly come to the Discalia's community attracted by powerful prayer? The results could be dire. If the newcomers, who had not submitted to the formational process of learning the faith, brought into the church the anger-producing, resentment-cherishing habitus of the wider society, the effects on the community's prayer and worship would be devastating. At war with each other, the community's members would be unable to pray freely. They would be powerless against the pressures of the society that surrounded it. They knew that if a community whose strength is prayer is unable to pray, the community would atrophy. Whoa. <laughs> That's how seriously the early Christians took prayer at their Sunday gathering. Take heed, brothers and sisters. So now... Uh, we got two more paragraphs. It was not only the Syrian community that ascribed binding authority to Jesus' liturgical saying found in matthew five twenty three to twenty four other communities also recognized that right relationships are a condition for authentic worship. Cyprian, in his famous treatise on unity, gives this name. Jesus' law of prayer. So he's the one that named it the law of prayer. This rule prescribes that a member who comes to worship angry cannot pray until he is reconciled with his brother. Only then can he offer his gifts to God. In his treaty on the Lord's Prayer, Cyprian repeats this, quote, clear rule. And he says, God does not accept the sacrifice of one who is in dispute and sends him back from the altar, ordering him first to be reconciled to his brother so that he may pacify God by praying as a peacemaker. Does that sound like a beatitude? Going back to Cyprian's words. The greater sacrifice to God is our peace and brotherly agreement as a people unified in the unity of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Tertullian agrees. According to his treatise on prayer, the church's most important instruction about prayer is simple. Reconciliation is a precondition for prayer. Before beginning to pray, Christians must resolve any offense or discord they have with other believers. truly cites the familiar passage Matthew five twenty three to twenty four. We should not go up to the altar of God before resolving whatever there might be of offense or discord contracted with the brothers. He equates anger toward bro- he equates anger toward a brother with homicide. Quote. How can one approach the peace of God without peace? End quote. With deferring nuances, Tertullian and Cyprian said the same thing. For Tertullian, the Christian's prayer was their quote, "rich and better sacrifice." End quote. For Cyprian, the Christian's reconciled brotherly agreement was their quote, "greater sacrifice to God." End quote. For both writers, prayer was central to Christian worship. It was the offering of the people whose life in the peace of God was exposed by the peace that they enjoyed with one another. This peace was monitored and enabled by the church leaders who hedged the peace by restricting access to prayer. And the peace was expressed bodily. By our right, the kiss of peace with which the brothers and sisters greeted each other in every Eucharistic service. Wow, so the church leaders actually monitored this peace. If people were upset and unreconciled, they would ask them to leave the service at that point And one of the ways that this peace was embodied, if you were at peace with your brothers, they exchanged, and then the book goes on to talk about this ritual, they exchanged the ritual of the kiss of peace. Now you see Paul talk about the kiss of peace at the end of some of his epistles. Uh, So it was in practice as early as Paul's time. The kiss of peace was when you did just that. You kissed your brothers and sisters as a family to show we are at peace and unified with one another. Isn't that interesting? Now, you could imagine that that might have brought problems, and yes, some of the church writers do, the early church writers do write about some problems. I can't remember who, but one of them was talking about, uh, there were complaints that that moment in the service got a little bit out of control or a little bit loud, um, uh, yeah, there was some monitoring needed, and there's a reason we don't do that to this day, because, well, kissing, you may know even from Greek culture to this day, um, That was a much more acceptable practice back then. It was a common way of greeting family members. Um, We, today, usually embody the practice of peace. In fact, if you go to um, super liturgical churches, um, they will they will, uh, instead of kissing each other in peace, they will say, greet each other in the peace of the Lord. I think they'll say, the peace of Christ be upon you, uh, then, uh, they then pe- the people turn to each other and exchange the peace of Christ with one another. Peace be with you, is what they would say, and you go around and say, peace be with you. Um, it's sort of an empty ritual at this point because no one is checking if they are reconciled with one of them at that moment. In fact, usually there's people exchanging peace that have never even exchanged names with each other. Um, at least that's my experience as a visitor. So, um, But yeah, you can see remnants of that actually even today. In some churches, so um, but brothers and sisters, the way we do this is that when we end the sermon and we sing, you hear us calling, you hear us calling, or we sing, I have called to you, O Lord, hear me, Lord. Either one of these ser- uh, songs that lead us into our time of prayers. Um, we've gotten into, uh, I- I've gotten into the habit of just allowing silence. And you guys to take on that time of prayer. There's a time when... That silence should be a time of checking our hearts. We're about to offer to God our prayers. Let's make sure we are living at peace with one another. Because if we aren't, then what we do is we pray and receive communion in vain. And that's also why it's one loaf and one cup that we practice... Because we have to remember that all of this is meant to reiterate and form us into one family. If we aren't going to live as one family, but receive these acts of worship as if we are, we're practicing hypocrisy. We are not living greater righteousness. We are not keeping the law of Christ. We are living the old covenant we have been called to something higher because Christ is forming us into new creatures. And this happens every Sunday. The scriptures guide us, our prayers offer us to God, and then God offers himself to us in communion. Let's make sure we don't miss this beautiful exchange by holding hostility or not being reconciled with our brothers and sisters. Don't you see? Don't you see how the church and its liturgy is leading us to a higher life than practicing old Jewish customs? And yeah, I get the appeal to a, a calendar. The Jews have a calendar that you can find in Leviticus, but brothers and sisters, the Christians have a calendar which which follows the gospel cycles, and, and it follows Pentecost, and it follows Passover, but these things have been fulfilled in the resurrection, the giving of the Holy Spirit. Um... And we've been called to higher. We've been called to more. And this is an exciting life. We need not to necessarily question, oh, maybe if we just change the methods, everything will be better. Yeah, methods matter. But we have a great method in our liturgy. What we need to do is we need to check our hearts. Because that is where Christ has put his law. Are we keeping it? So he will build a rich, dynamic community that will be a light on this mountain If we can keep peace with one another, (laughs) that's the reason this was the first example Jesus gave us of higher righteousness. I think the church caught on to that and saw that this is vital. So, peace be with you, brothers and sisters. If I wrong you or offend you, talk to me. We must not be in the habit of just switching churches because that does not build peace and unity among the brothers and sisters of Christ. We need peace and unity primarily in our local community, Calvary, Appleton, Peaks, and only if we can accomplish it there can we then worry about accomplishing it with other churches as well. The unity of the church begins with the unity of the families which meet in their various locales. So again, The peace of Christ be with you, brothers and sisters. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.